Welcome to She Been Ready, the podcast. She Been Ready is a conversation, a declaration, and a clarification that Black women have always led. On this podcast, I, Dr. Wendy Williams, educator, psychologist, leader, and auntie, will be joined by Black women who lead and those who have been led well by them. So, you don't have to get ready when you stay ready, and you can trust in the leadership of a Black woman because she's been ready. Deeply excited and thrilled to be in this conversation with my two sister friends, Dr. Miriam Noesi, Jernigan Noesi, excuse me, and Yolanda Celia Ruiz. We um, are doing a special iteration of She Been Ready the Podcast, a video blog, uh, or rather a video podcast um, and panel conversation entitled Break My Soul. Um, BIPOC folks in academia. So we thought we'd start with a little bit of an introduction and just to bring all of you all into this conversation with us. And we'll begin with that. And so you all know that the start of 2023 of the academic year, two Black women, university presidents, Drs. Joanne A. Epps of Temple University and uh, Arinthia T. Montague of Volunteer State Community College died. Their deaths were spurred or spurred talk on social media and blogs, providing the latest takes on what many of us have come to know and expect of academia. As we learned this news, it came with celebration of the fact that two highly coveted university presidencies were to be seated by two Black women. Harvard University and Boston University announced that Claudine Gay and Melissa Gilliam, respectively, would take the helm of these institutions. And yes, like many others, I was excited for them. You know, I'm always rooting for Black women, Black women in leadership, no matter what it is, um, and their accomplishments, right? And I was also deeply concerned. I personally, I said a prayer uh, and a hope that these women would be covered and protected by the people in their lives, because I have little faith that the institutions that they're entering into would do that for them. Academic settings are inherently toxic employment environments for BIPOC folks, that's Black, Indigenous, people of color, uh, folks queer and gender non-conforming and non-binary folks and folks with disabilities. The reason being simply is they were not intended for us and they carry the cultural baggage of elitism, exclusion and harm meant to deter our participation. And yet colleges and universities are one of the environments in our society that offer the greatest opportunity for learners to be exposed to people and practices representing different cultural backgrounds and walks of life with the potential to broaden their horizons. As a site for learning, students access the manifest and latent, curr latent curriculum to navigate power, privilege, and access for their launch into the world of career and adulthood. As a site for employment, it is a context that's rife with the trappings of patriarchal white supremacist violence levied toward those that appear to disrupt the status quo by their mere non-white presence. And when they are brave, the bold audacity to live outside of the precepts of whiteness and its organizational culture. Scholars popular in social media abound with hot takes of what happens to black, indigenous and people of color in these contexts. Concepts such as institutional betrayal and academic trauma, 
do the social scientific labor of trying to define and describe the human experience of living with hate ascribed on the phenotype of skin color, hair texture and styles and features. With some time to gather our thoughts and reflect on black women at work in academic context, I have invited Drs. Yolanda Sidi Ruiz and Miriam Jernigan Noesi to a special She Been Ready, the podcast panel conversation. With their expertise in the areas of racial literacy and education and racial and academic trauma and my focus on black women's liberatory leadership praxis and workplace health, we grapple with three core questions. One, what is happening to black women in academic context? Two, why is it happening? And three, what refusal and recovery strategies can be employed to preserve them? We titled this conversation, this panel, Break My Soul, a nod to Beyonce's single of the same name, as it is a declaration of refusal and recovery, available by the room made with a good no. Join us as we unpack with deep regard and respect the conditions that cut short the lives of two Black women educational leaders and undermine the sense of safety and joy to be found in work for BIPOC folks queer and gender non-conforming non-binary folks and folks with disabilities who dare to work and lead in academia. So let's just open the space. We both need to, we need to hear from both of you just so the space can be warmed with your, with your presence, but welcome, please fill it with me. Thank you. Thank you. Happy to, to be here. Um, excited to be in conversation. Um, <laughs> Excited because I think it's an important conversation is what I'll say. Mm -hmm. uh, certainly when I saw the news um, of uh, the two black women first, initially right, the first a black woman who died and then the second, it hit me mm -hmm. um, as a, a former professor, right? In academia on tenure track who, who by way of refusal left. <laughs> uh, but there was something about um, reading the stories, thinking about Black women and academia that resonated so deeply that I reached out to you. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm just excited to, to unpack the complexity and all of the nuance that often gets ignored or unacknowledged. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, uh, I too am super excited for this conversation. First, to be in fellowship with the two of you uh, amazing women, instant sisters. And I'm also excited because of the hope mm -hmm. that I have for this conversation, that those who hear it will need to hear it at that time, will pause and really reflect and that it will shift something in them. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I, that's where my excitement is because I know uh, once we start, share, start sharing our stories, and Wendy, the beautiful work that you have done, Dr. Williams, in capturing those Black women's stories in your work, we know that these stories are out there, but oftentimes we don't have or not given the space to tell our stories. Mm -hmm. And so I'm grateful for this moment of storytelling, and I hope that it in some ways changes all of us uh, just by being together, but also will change the listener. Absolutely. And I'm grateful to be here with the two of you too. So we 
you know, the text messages and the ways that we reach out and connect, or we say, Ooh, that was hard. And I remember hearing about the, this story in September. And it's interesting because it's at the start of the academic term, you know, we're sharpening pencils, getting our school clothes ready and all the rest. Right. And this sits right on top of, on, on top of it all. These women were just set to start their year as the academic leaders, one who, um, who died in the middle of an event honoring someone else, you know? So there's a lot there. And I, I really would like for us to get beneath it and underneath it. Um, I think our vantage points as psychologists and as educators and as all having had the experiences of higher ed as a student, as folks in early career and folks in, in you know later career, we won't say how late, right? But mm -hmm. in later career, we, we can see the full scope. We work with people, we support people. I support students who are in other institutions being abused by other professionals. Do you know, like I have carried that water. Mm -hmm. I <laughs> sit in the institution as an academic leader and administrator at a pretty high level. I know about this and I know that you know about it too. So I really hope that we allow for folks to enter into this space and to a knowing of what the context of this work is. Um, and maybe we can leave some of our listeners with a sense of how to navigate and negotiate these circumstances. Because I do believe that for all of us, you know, education in the Black community in particular is a noble effort, is a noble um, vocation. Mm -hmm. it is. We were teachers before we were paid to be teachers. We found and created learning spaces. Um, against odds, all odds. That's odds, freedom schools. <laughs> in rail cars, we did that. And so when we think about what draws us, what drew, I know what drew me to education. I'm, you know, I know the two of you, I know, you know, that your stories, there's this draw and purpose and calling inside of it. What happens when this calling is met with such an environment so toxic and wrong? Hmm. Well, I want to say that when I heard the news, it knocked the wind out of me. You know, it was first the sister from Temple, and thank you for saying their names um, and reminding uh, the world that they existed and that they were serving. And I remember calling my dear friend Goldie Muhammad, and it took everything for us not to cry. But it, it was, I'm almost befuddled because we couldn't believe it. It's like, what? And that this death was so public. And so automatically it took my mind back to, I hate to be so grim, but enslavement times when we were, you know, literally put on display our bodies, you know, and, and oftentimes killed, right, for public spectacle. Yes. So Goldie and I kind of talked through that a little bit, mm -hmm. but I have to tell you, it shook me. It shook me to my core. And then what, two weeks later? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And someone who was younger? And I remember saying to myself, because I am ending sabbatical, I'll be going back in a few weeks. I remember saying, I am so glad that I don't have to see people in my institution for them to talk about this. Because I don't want to talk about it with anyone except for my bestie, who is also in academia. So I just wanted to share like my, and even now as I'm talking, you know, my hands are cold, right? And I'm, I'm feeling viscerally the anger, the sadness, the shock that I felt at that time. And I'm sorry, I didn't answer the question. I just had to. There was no question. Yeah. It's... Yeah. 
I think the emotional reaction and response is actually a good place to start because we are not always listening for the interiority of Black women. Um, we see us as workers. Even when we're presidents of universities, these are highly coveted positions. They're very powerful positions, and yet we enter them um, with the same mammification that our ancestors had to grapple with. Okay. Miriam, I see you stirring. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I think it is. I, I would agree. Um, just, you know, it's it's one thing to sort of read the story, be in the moment, and to even prepare for the conversation today, and then to start the conversation. And so I, I would agree with Yoli in that. Um, there's something stirring right on the inside of me, something that feels um, activated, right? Um, if you will, certainly feels connected, right? Um, to both of the, the the black women that that died and that we are certainly um, referencing and honoring in our conversation today. Mm -hmm. um, and all of the black women, I feel like, right? That have been, you know, in academia. So I think listening um, to Yoli, talk sort of reminded me of the conversations again and how I think Wendy your point about the fact that we just really have a space and a place right um to even sit with some of that ourselves mm -hmm. let alone right in community with one another I think that, you know the conversation around black women you know in academia and what happens to us at, mm -hmm. what comes to mind for me is just just trying to get through mm -hmm. Um, trying to survive, right? Um, survive, right? The workday, survive um, the experience amongst others um, mm -hmm. in the institution, survive a career, right? Potentially um, in academia and especially in institutions that take so much, mm -hmm. right? From us. Um, so I think I'm, I, my, my, my mind, my thoughts, right? Are sort of um, thinking about all of the different roles right, that we play um, and just how much, um, in terms of thinking about work and even my own experiences in academia, how much time mm. um, folks wanted from me was one of the decisions that, you know, that sort of made me transition. I used to say it was like they wanted unfettered access, right, to my mm -hmm. time, my mind, my labor. Mm -hmm. um, and so as we're entering into the conversation, I'm thinking about that and also, right, wanting to hold on to hope um, mm -hmm. in terms of the conversation or the portion of our conversation that will help folks ideally help folks um, understand how to, right, or better gain some strategies of how to mm -hmm. navigate, right, those spaces. Mm -hmm. But the gravity, I think, is what I'm sitting with and what was stirring. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, Marion, just listening to you speak, mm -hmm. you know, perhaps we'll talk about the heaviness and move through, you know, it'll, this will be what it will be. But I couldn't help thinking, particularly as someone who is in English and in literacy, mm -hmm. think about the actual deaths of those two sisters and the metaphorical deaths, mm -hmm. right? That we deal with. And what I, I wanna lift you up, Miriam, and that you decided, no, mm -hmm. the title of this, you will not break my soul. No, you will not break my soul. You will not strip me down. Literally, you will not kill me. Mm -hmm. Also metaphorically, you will not kill me and I'm out. Yes. And, and what I want to encourage our readers is that there's the physical, like leaving that many of us need to do mm -hmm. but those of us who feel the need to stay mm -hmm. for sense, mm 
for not having another you know, outlet, like to open up a private practice or anything. We must figure out how not to allow that death to happen. Yes, yes. And that's what I'm hoping we can really we absolutely and yes. talk about. Yes, yes. Because some of us will remain. Yes, yes. Yeah. But it will not break our souls or take our lives. We that's right. That's right. right. You know, you. we have been psychologically leaving and quiet quitting for a long time. We mm -hmm. had to psychologically leave. Some of that might have been some dissociation mm. in order, right? That we could even come through our ancestors and be here. Say that again, please. Psychologically leaving, quiet quitting. These are things that are not new, I think, to folks who have been in exploitive and abusive labor contexts hmm. that they did not feel empowered to leave. So Black people have that in this country from the context of enslavement. And I mm. want us to also extend that to a global perspective to understand that a colonial and imperialist project Ooh. does that work. We know the story in the U.S. with Black folks, with Indigenous folks, with Latinx folks. But across the globe, it's it's the push around imperialist power toward capital gain. That's why it happens. Right? Mm. Yeah. So when you're a human being trying to maintain or hold on to any sense of your integrity or humanity, you must figure out what does it mean to psychologically leave, or you may physically manifest leave in ways that might actually not preserve your life. Ooh. Right. And sometimes you can get away in ways that preserve your life. So I think of maroon societies. I, I think of all the ways. And then I also think of the ways that we create maroon societies in the workspace in place so that we keep our soul and we don't you know harm ourselves with maladaptive coping strategies uh that in in the short time sure it's fun or it's a good release but what does it look like to harness power and harness collectivity and commun communalism and support within and outside the workplace to ensure that you are someone whose soul remains intact mm. no matter what they're doing around you because you're right Yoli a lot of folks cannot just up and walk off their job mm -hmm. That not just because of the students who are depending on them, but the family that they are creating possibility for income, home, hmm. access. Those are also reasons why people go to work. I uh, did a keynote presentation this summer and just shared a few stats. One of the ones I'll share with you all today is that Black women between the ages of 18 and 64 participate in the workforce at a level of 81%. Oh. oh my gosh. Yeah. 81%. No wonder we're tired. That's why we're tired. Oh. That's why. But we have to work. Mm -hmm. Because so many people, people depend on us. People Not depend on us, and we're only getting 63 yeah. cents to the dollar. So we need to work more in order to get that whole dollar. Uh, and we need to nurture and support people when we get home and, you know, make sure that the home is safe and secure and clean and well-stocked and all that. That's why we're working. That part. That part. <laughs> right. So we have a very full participation in the workforce. Mm -hmm. And in the academic workforce, while people may see it as a privileged space, it comes with it a punishment. I think Black women's participation comes with it with a punishment for being able to be there and also being being pretty damn good when you're there. 
Like, I think not succumbing to uh, stereotypes, not, um, not being reflective in the stereotype, your actuality, your actual humanity and presence, not reflective of what stereotypes would say about black people, black women, black intelligence, all the rest, defying that actually makes people mad. Uh, mm -hmm. One of the scholar I really like, her name is Karithia Mitchell. She writes about know your oh. place of aggression. Dr. Mitchell, hashtag Dr. Mitchell, we love you. But yeah. truly, right? How yeah. dare you think you can live in this white house when you need to be in that slave cabin? Uh -uh. There's a lot of punishment that you'll get for that. And I think that that's a big part of this too. And so if you're going to be here, then I need to have unfettered access to you and use you and pull away the joy from your intellectual engagement and pull away the parts that give you happiness and working with and supporting students and supporting students from communities like the ones you likely came from that you feel passion for. I need to make you work for that and make that difficult for you so that at least if you're here, you're here for my benefit, not for yours, even though everybody else, particularly the white men who've enjoyed that space before you got to be here for theirs. But the privilege is that you don't get to do it like they got to do it. And the white women too. And the white women too. And the white women too. So what is happening to black women at work in academic context? You know, what do you all see there? We could enter this through what happened to you or we could enter it through what happened globally, right? Because we could do the distance, mm -hmm. but like what is happening? What do you all see? You know, Miriam, I would love to hear more from you if you don't mind in terms of what was the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back, right? Because I'm sure your decision, not just in your brilliance of making a way, what we say out of no way or making paths in other ways, but I know it had to be cumulative. Mm -hmm. right? oh, um, and I'm interested in what was that moment that like, okay, I'm good. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because I think that that straw might also give insight mm -hmm. to um, some of the things that have happened. Mm -hmm. So if, if that's okay, that I'm 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 burning to really learn from you and to to know what happened there. Yeah, no, I, for me it actually goes back to being right a student, a trainee, mm -hmm. um, in terms of the cumulative experience. So I I had um, I attended historically black college and university. It, it, I was just having a conversation with a student. Um, from Fisk University, um, where I attended under, as an undergraduate psychology major yesterday. Oh. Um, and I was saying to her that my life in so many ways is like up to Fisk and then after Fisk. Mm. It was a critical moment. Certainly we were talking about her her journey into the profession, into the field of psychology, but that really is, for me, an important part of the narrative. I mean, so much of, in addition to like my upbringing, my family, right, those sort of strong roots and foundation, um, being able to attend an HBCU gave me sort of additional insight, right, um, as well as community and preparation for the institutions that I endured um, mm. following that. And so oof, at the master's level, um, even at the PhD level, where I was very fortunate to have a Black woman mentor and have other people of color around me, because at that time, there were numerous, right, more than one. Um, faculty of color in my program, right? So there were other students of color mm -hmm. right, that were there as well. Um, but I have, you know, just some really noteworthy and uh, painful mm -hmm. kind of um, interactions. Uh, everything from your sort of stereotypical stories of, you know, folks trying to touch your hair or make you an exception to a rule or 
um, accuse you, right, of not knowing what you're talking about or not doing the way that when you do the work well, then not, you know, that it's not you, mm -hmm. um, the work, mm -hmm. um, the crazy making, so to speak, experiences of just the mental gymnastics of folks who, you know, attempt to mm -hmm. um, minimize, dismiss um, what it, your contributions, what you bring to the table while also, you know, co-opt them, steal mm -hmm. them, right, sort of take them. So those experiences for me, interestingly enough, began to inform just my ideas about my own career as a psychologist, right? Who was trained to certainly be a professor, be in academia as well as, mm -hmm. you know, as a clinician. Um, so I used to always say like, I don't know, academia is not my thing. I love research. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, actually love teaching. Wendy, as you were talking earlier um, about ancestors, my grandfather used to call me school teacher. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he didn't, you know, and I was like, then you know I'm in school for psychology. Like, I'm not, I'm not a school. And then one day, right, it sort of hit me like, oh, right, he, this is more deep, <laughs> right? It wasn't about, right? No, I'm not. He didn't think he wasn't getting old and thinking I was going to be. No, you know, he knew. He yes, he knew, knew right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and so for me, I always, uh, I was always hesitant. I mean, I watched, as I said, I knew um, several black psychologists and certainly folks, um, in academia who were very open and transparent with me, right. About their experiences in an effort to prepare me. And so I was like, Oh, I want to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, and so there was this interesting sort of navigation for me in terms of the opportunities that presented themselves, um, you know, in my early career in particular, um, academia, you know, was one of those, um, especially extending from, you know, some postdoctoral experiences I had, you know, conducting research and looking at things like, you know, disparities. And so mm -hmm. I actually tried to avoid academia and then it was just kind of like, nowhere. And I was like, okay, well, this must have some meaning. So let me, mm -hmm. you know, figure it out. And I did enjoy, right. My time with students, I enjoyed being able to, especially mentor students who I know, um, coming into, uh, some of those institutions did not have, Mm -hmm. um, sound guidance, you know, advisement, many of whom were students of color. I remember the last institution I worked at, um, my first week there, I had the door open, right? And then I just saw, sometimes I started seeing students of color walk by, like, who's that? <laughs> who's right? Because right? unicorn, right? I always tell that story. <laughs> so I knew, yes, it's important, yeah. right? So yeah. I think that was also a, an important piece of the narrative um, of the nuance here for me as well. It's like, ooh, I need to be here, right, for mm -hmm. them. Mm -hmm. so as much as Mary you're thinking you want to do something else right this is important um you're able to provide students with opportunities as well as guidance mm -hmm. so that they mm -hmm. can right sort of access graduate school especially as I think about the trajectory into psychology um so I felt some guilt right mm -hmm. sort of, again being presented with at some point positions that in some cases I didn't apply for right, right? and I know that other folks did um and then not wanting to be there it's kind of like they don't give tenure track positions away Mary so you might want to you know that whole narrative Right, that I had internalized. Um, and I remember talking to some of my Black women um, mentors, right, uh, who were academics and saying, yeah, I don't want to do this. And I remember folks used to always just say, but we need you here, right? That was, mm -hmm. I'd love to have that piece of the conversation too, right? As we talk, mm -hmm. yeah. guidance and advice we're giving other folks. But for mm -hmm. me, I didn't always feel it was an alignment. Mm -hmm. I now in hindsight, right, know that there was a purpose for that phase, right, in my early career and the mm -hmm. students that um, I hoped um, sort of contributed to, you know, their their professional journeys, but it really was um, outside of being in direct connection with students, right? Outside of being able to provide opportunities and mentoring, the meetings, the politics, the people, right? Being the first and the only in so many spaces um, that really felt depleting to me. And that was the angst, 
Mm-hmm. Right. I always tell my mentees, like, pay attention to sort of what makes you get excited when you feel a fire in your belly. And it wasn't in the meetings. Let's be clear. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And so for a long time, I, you know, I struggled um, and almost in an effort to convince some of my mentors to like, give me grace and permission. <laughs> just to do leave. it. I'm like, I want to do this. <laughs> we need you. And it's like, I was looking for them. Just give me a blessing, please. Oh, sorry. <laughs> um, right. So because, right, I felt like I was abandoning, right, the cause. Like there's only so many of us, like you, we need you here. Um, mm-hmm. But it really was, it, it got to a point, I think also for me, where the depletion, right, mm-hmm. was compromising my health and well-being. Mm-hmm. Very literal ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and at different, at different ways and at different times. Um, and I promised myself, actually, when I entered my first year of my doctoral program, I, I became really ill. And I remember saying to myself, these folks are not going to kill me. So mm-hmm. let me do what I need to do, right? Exercise, nutrition, et cetera. And so that mantra for me has always sustained. And so there is a piece of me that has always been a little bit of a, res- not a little bit, a resistor and a disruptor. You were, I'm like a little bit. Why is, what's the qualifier for? What's the qualifier? I don't know what you're The doing. resistor <laughs> and a disruptor. Um, oh. Yes. <laughs> So it was always there, and then it just became activated the more and more, um, honestly, that I felt, you know, sort of disrespected. I was just like, again, this is compromising yeah. me, right? My personhood, my interest, um, you know, my livelihood, my ability to engage in, as you said, sort of the kinds of work that I wanted to do as a community-based, you know, also researcher, mm-hmm. um, and being in institutions that didn't value that work, right? Mm-hmm. Minimize that work unless it was, you know, for, for gain for themselves. And so it, it did get to a point where, um, I started to put energy and effort into, mm-hmm. right, the things that were of interest to me. Um, and it, and I literally sort of had this image of myself where it's like, during COVID, like, do you want to go back to that? Hmm. Right. I paid attention to the fire in my belly where I had some space, right, and distance from having to go into the office and into the spaces and physically mm-hmm. into the meetings. Mm-hmm. That allowed me to sort of say, I can't go back to that, which felt mm-hmm. so minimizing and limiting. Mm-hmm. Um, and to begin to really um, activate, right, the part of me that says the institution, because I always knew that, has never defined me. So that's why I went back, right? I want folks to understand. There's some folks that don't need to sort of pay attention to and, and become aware of what they've internalized. I'm like, this institution has never defined me. You have to be prepared to walk away. That's my stance, mm. right, when you're in systems. Um, and so there was, it was already there. And then it was just a point for me where it's not even that sort of idea of, you know, sort of fighting to get a seat at the table and bring my own chair. I don't want your table. Mm. Or, um, right? Or your chair. Mm. I'm going to go build this house over here. Don't have a whole house. I heard that. Yes, Miriam. <laughs> and I can still do the same that. thing. Yes. So I still have my students. I yes. still conduct my research. Yes. I still, you know, publish all of those things, right? And I think for me, transitioning into the sort of the mid-career phase, it's like I did my time, right? And I was sort of in the institution. I understand the institution. I helped shepherd some folks through, ideally. Mm-hmm. Um, and now I'm at a place where I still see, right, my work as being in relation to my sisters that are still in academia, like we are, you know, they're sort of bringing them through and then bring them to me, right? Mm-hmm, as they're transitioning mm-hmm, out because mm-hmm. there are other opportunities. Wow. So my contribution remains more so on my terms though. Mm. Right? And so there's just this evolution, I think sort of journey. But for me, it was this sort of, it's like, you can either continue in this space and allow that energy or peace, or you can sort of, you know, sort of go and do um, and bet on yourself, as I always say, in that regard. But, but I'm still who I am. As my my grandfather said, I'm still a teacher. 
mm-hmm. right at heart. So I still do those things. It feels so liberatory, uh, Miriam. And it makes me, it's, it's, it's screaming Harriet Tubman. When you talk about an alternate pathway for students, like, and another way that they don't have to go into academia necessarily, they can still do and have the research career and the opportunities of, you know, in that regard without the politics and the, you know, the problems that come along with it or the problem that they are perceived to be in those settings and therefore, you know, are on the receiving end of a lot of just troubling behavior. Yes, no, I have a best friend as well who I talk to often and we always talk about when we were, you know, in systems, we actually both, she before I transitioned, um, you know, to entrepreneurship, doing different things, but we always say, but I'm just trying to do my job. Right. I'm just trying to go to work and do what I want. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. and I did so many barriers, right? From the moment you get out of your car, yeah. <laughs> right. Or, or enter from transportation, right. Into the system, which is like, there's so many things to navigate before I can just get to, right. The teaching, right. And, and that's what students. And that's it. I want to hear more from you, Yoli, but I just want to say what you just so said. Very just watered my soul. Okay. So- <laughs> We're not going to break souls. We're just going to water souls. Watering souls. That's what we do. <laughs> but I feel like that's what, when, when when we ask the question, what's happening to Black women in academia, I feel like that's what's happening. Yeah. What's happening is that the situation is made so untenable by various systems, practices, and just individual behavior of people who are committed to the status quo, committed to uh, the, the, committed to the, the, the cultural, uh, behaviors of of whiteness of Mm -hmm. access to non-access and preserving the elitism and the exclusion Mm -hmm. and it's a really interesting conversation to have in the midst of higher ed as an industry right now where that exclusion actually is not helping your enrollment and so you see people shifting and turning a new you know new page with that within this political climate and moment but I would say that that's what's happening it's those a number of unique and special particular barriers and blockages to ascension for black women. I would say for other folks as well, but as a black woman, I can tell that I'm watching people who attempt to frustrate my moves because me moving forward or achieving a goal or doing something in this space means something to them. It means something to them. Does it mean that, wait, maybe all Black people are not inferior? Does it mean that Black women could be good leaders? Does it mean, what is